One of the peculiarities of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the matter of personal testimony. It is quite customary for faithful members of the Church to testify to their faith and knowledge of the truth of this work wherever and whenever opportunity occurs. It is desirable and expected that before one joins the Church he shall have an individual assurance of the truth of the doctrines we teach that the gospel that we proclaim is the restored plan of life and salvation, that it is not a new religion, but the eternal gospel, the keys, principles, and doctrines of which were restored to men on earth by heavenly messengers who held these keys and this authority in previous dispensations, and when the Lord and his apostles were upon the earth in the meridian of time. People who are inclined to lie entirely upon reason in reaching conclusions, find it difficult to accept as reliable those things that cannot be proved by the five senses. Paul may have had this in mind when he said, For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. The English poet John Dryden has said, Dim as the borrowed beams of moon and stars to lonely, weary, wandering travelers is reason to the soul. And so on high those rolling fires discover but the sky, not light us here. So reason's glimmering ray was lent not to assure our doubtful way, but guide us upward to a better day. And as those nightly tapers disappear, when day's bright Lord ascends, ascends our hemisphere, so pale grows reason at religion's sight, so dies and so dissolves in supernatural light. Moroni, in bidding farewell to the Lamanites, left this testimony as recorded in the Book of Mormon. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and if she shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things, and ye may know that he is by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore I would exhort you that ye deny not the power of God, for he worketh by power, according to the faith of the children of men, the same today, tomorrow, and forever. I recall reading a few years ago that a prominent prelate of one of the Christian churches in Salt Lake City, who has since passed away, expressed a feeling of admiration and respect for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their standards of life, but he said he did not favor their policy of testimony-bearing. Notwithstanding the many and great miracles the disciples of our Lord had seen him perform, there were times when they seemed to have had some doubts in their minds concerning their Lord and Master, whether he was truly and indeed the Christ of whom the prophets had spoken. On one occasion, however, the scriptures tell us that when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? The question was truly a faith-testing one. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That testimony which came as a revelation to Peter from the Father has come down to us through the years and is an indication to us as to how we may know that Jesus is the Christ in the same way we may know and bear testimony also to the truth of the restored gospel that that same Jesus lives today and is our Redeemer and Savior. It may be revealed to man by God through the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, for by that means can we know all things that is expedient for us to know. The source of that testimony is the rock of revelation upon which the Church of Christ is built, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, as indicated, uh, against it, as indicated by the Savior, Flesh and blood does not reveal these things to man, but they come only by revelation from our Father in heaven. Our testimony of the truth of this work is unique, and it is perhaps our principal source of strength in proclaiming the gospel message to the world. That testimony must be firm and true. It must be built upon the rock of revelation. It must be such as to withstand the winds of criticism and the storms of persecution that may be hurled against the church. It must be made firm by a righteous life. As we grow in understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our understanding of the purpose of life increases, and our faith in God's representatives is magnified in our minds. Our missionaries, as they go into the world with the message of the restoration, bear testimony to the truth of this latter-day work. These testimonies must be more than mere words. They must be true convictions. And when they come from the heart and soul, as they should do, they have an impact on the thinking of their listeners that cannot easily be cast aside, because those testimonies come with the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit. Emerson said, The vice of our theology is seen in the claim that the Bible is a closed book and that the age of inspiration is past. The strength of this church does not depend alone upon the prophets and apostles of earlier dispensations, nor upon the testimony of the general authorities of the present. The strength of this church is in the testimony and faith of its members, and every member may have that testimony if he will seek it through study and sincere prayer and if he will keep the commandments the Lord has given us. That testimony will become a knowledge of the truth of this work. Through righteous living and unselfish service, it will grow stronger day by day and will develop into a knowledge that nothing but carelessness or sin can weaken or destroy. One of the former presidents of the church, President David O. McKay, has said in regard to this subject, a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is the most sacred, the most precious gift in our lives, obtained only by, by adherence to the principles of the gospel, not by following the paths of the world. You may get momentary pleasures by following the enticements of the world. You may get transitory pleasure, yes, but you cannot find joy. You cannot find happiness. Happiness is found only along that well-beaten track, narrow as it is, though straight, which leads to life eternal. That is my testimony to you, he said. Sometimes there are obstacles. There is persecution. There is self-denial. There will be tears because you are coming constantly in contact with these enticements, with these worldly ideals, and you have to overcome them. And for the moment, there will seem to be sacrifice, but it is only temporary. The Lord never forsakes those who seek him. It may not come just the way you think, but it will come. The Lord will certainly fulfill his promise to you. With further reference to testimony and his own testimony, he said, but the testimony that this work is divine comes not through manifestation, great and glorified as the manifestation was. He's speaking now of a special manifestation that had come to him. But through obedience to God's will, in harmony with Christ's promise, if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Through the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, testimony has come into the hearts and souls of millions of Latter-day Saints since the church was organized in 1830, that Jesus is the Christ, that he lives, that he is the firstborn of the Father in the Spirit and the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, that he is our Redeemer and Savior, that he is the author of the eternal plan of life and salvation, that he is our elder brother, that in answer to Joseph Smith's humble prayer, Joseph was a boy of 14 at the time, our heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, glorified heavenly beings of flesh and bones, appeared to him in the grove near Palmyra, New York in 1820, that his account of this experience is true, These people have testified that the Holy Ghost has made manifest unto them that Joseph Smith was a prophet of the living God, chosen before the foundation of the earth was laid to be the instrument in the hands of the Lord in preparing the way for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Further, that those who have succeeded the prophet Joseph Smith as prophets of the Lord's church including Spencer W. Kimball, our present prophet and president, have held and do hold the keys to the kingdom of God upon the earth, which, among other things, give authority for the responsibility of carrying the message of the restored gospel to all mankind, that no one may be left without excuse. The prophet Joseph sealed his testimony with his blood, as many others have done since the gospel was restored to earth. After an association of more than 50 years with the leaders of the church here upon the earth, prophets, seers, and revelators of this dispensation, during which period of time I have witnessed the inspiration and revelation of the Lord to his servants, I add my testimony that the Spirit of the Lord has borne witness to my soul that these things are true, 
I testify if we can bring our eternal spirits into attune with the promptings of God's Holy Spirit, the hand of God may be made visible and the listening ear so attuned may be responsive to the celestial whisperings of the voice of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, humbly and gratefully, I stand before you today. I thank the Lord for the eternal principle of freedom, free agency, the right of choice. I cherish patriotism and love of country in all lands. This morning, I speak about the Constitution of the United States, that glorious standard raised up by the Founding Fathers. I want to pay tribute to those who laid the foundation of our Republic. I desire to bear testimony concerning one of the most vital principles that makes the work of the Founders timeless and inspired. Every Latter-day Saint should love the inspired Constitution of the United States, a nation with a spiritual foundation and a prophetic history, which nation the Lord has declared to be his base of operations in these latter days. The framers of the Constitution were men raised up by God to establish this foundation of our government. For so the Lord has declared by revelation in these words, quote, I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood, Unquote. Yes, this is a land fertilized by the blood of patriots. During the struggle for independence, nearly 9,000 of the colonists' forces were killed. Among those 56 patriots who had pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor by signing the Declaration of Independence, at least nine paid that price with their life's blood. At the close of the Revolution, the 16 states found themselves independent, but then faced grave internal ec economic and political problems. The Articles of Confederation had been adopted but proved to be ineffectual. Under this instrument, the nation was without a president ahead. There was a Congress, but, there was no, but it was a body destitute of any power. There was no Supreme Court. The states were merely a confederation. Washington wrote of the defect of this loose federation in these words, quote, The fabric which took nine years at the expense of much blood and treasure to rear now totters to the foundation, and without support, must soon fall." Unquote. Because of this crisis, 55 of the 74 appointed delegates reported to the convention, representing every state except Rhode Island, for the purpose of forming a more perfect union. 39 finally signed the Constitution. Who were these delegates? those whom the Lord designated wise men, whom he raised up. They were mostly young men in the prime of life. 
their average age being 44. Benjamin Franklin was the eldest at 81. George Washington, the presiding officer of the convention, was 55. Alexander Hamilton was only 32. James Madison, who recorded the proceedings of the convention with his remarkable notes, was only 36. These were young men, but men of exceptional character, sober, seasoned, distinguished men of affairs, drawn from various walks of life. Of the 39 signers, 21 of them were college-educated in the leading American colleges and in Great Britain. 18 were or had been lawyers or judges. 26 had, been, had seen service in the Continental Congress. 19 had served in the Revolutionary Army, 17 as officers. Four had been on Washington's personal staff during the war. Among that assembly of the 39 signers were later to be found two presidents of the United States, one the father of his country, a vice president of the United States, a secretary of treasury, a secretary of war, a secretary of state, two chief justices of the Supreme Court, and three who served as justices, and the Venerable Franklin, a diplomat, philosopher, scientist, and statesman. They were not backwoodsmen from the far-off frontiers, not one of them. There has not been another group of men in all the 200 years of our history that ever challenged the supremacy of this group. President Wilfred Woodruff, said, quote, they were the best spirits the God of heaven could find on the face of the earth. They were choice spirits, unquote. Following the drafting of the Constitution, it awaited ratification by the states. In 1787, three states ratified the Constitution. In the next year, eight more followed, and on April 6th, 1787, 187 years ago today, the Constitution of the United States went into operation as the basic law of the United States when the Electoral College unanimously elected George Washington as the first president of the nation. This date, I believe, was not accidental. In the final analysis, what the framers did under the inspiration of God was to draft a document that merited the approval of God himself, who declared it, quote, to be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, unquote. The document has been criticized by some as outmoded, and even a recent president of the United States criticized it as a document quote, written for an entirely different period in our nation's history, unquote. The eminent constitutional authority, President J. Reuben Clark, has answered this argument in these words, quote, these were the horse and buggy days, as they have been called in derision. These were the men who traveled in horse-drawn buggies and on horseback. But these are the men who carried under their hats as they rode in their buggies and on their horses, a political wisdom garnered from the ages." Unquote. What those framers did can better be appreciated when it is considered that when the instrument went into operation, 
It covered only 13 states with fewer than 4 million people. Today, it adequately covers 50 states and over 200 million people. The wisdom of these delegates is shown in the genius of the document itself. The founders had a strong distrust for centralized power in the federal government. So they created a government with checks and balances. It was to prevent any branch of the government from becoming too powerful. Congress could pass laws, but the president could check this with a veto. Congress, however, could override the veto and by its means of initiative in taxation could further restrain the executive department. The Supreme Court could nullify laws passed by the Congress and signed by the president, but Congress could limit the court's appellate jurisdiction. The president could appoint judges for their lifetime with the consent of the Senate. Each branch of the government was also made subject to different political pressures. The president was to be chosen by electors, senators by state legislatures, representatives by the people, and the Supreme Court by the president with the consent of the Senate. All this was deliberately designed to make it difficult for a majority of the people to control the government and to place restraint on the government itself. The founders created a republic which Jefferson described as, quote, action by the citizens in person, in affairs within their reach and competence, and in all others by representatives. A study of the basic principles which undergird the document would be profitable for all Americans during this bicentennial year. When James Russell Lowell was asked, how long will the American Republic endure? He replied, as long as the ideas of the men who founded it continue dominant, unquote. May I comment on one of the most vital ideas and principles? Constitutional government, as designed by the framers, will survive only with a righteous people. Our Constitution, said John Adams, second president, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. America, north and south, is a choice land, a land reserved for God's own purposes. This land and its inhabitants are under an everlasting decree. The Lord revealed this decree to the brother of Jared, an American prophet, in these solemn words, quote, And now we can behold the decrees of God concerning this land, that it is a land of promise, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. And the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. For behold, this is a land which is choice above all other lands, Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. For it is an everlasting decree of God. Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven. 
if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ. The Lord has also decreed that this land should be the place of the new Jerusalem, which should come down out of heaven, the holy sanctuary of the Lord. Here is our nation's destiny to serve God's eternal purposes and to prepare this land and people for America's eventual destiny, the Lord established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom he raised up to this very purpose. Many Americans have lost sight of the truth that righteousness is the one indispensable ingredient to liberty. Perhaps as never before in our history is our nation collectively deserving of the indictment pronounced by Abraham Lincoln in these words, quote, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us, then, to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness." Unquote. Unless we as citizens of this nation forsake our sins, political and otherwise, and return to the fundamental principles of Christianity and of constitutional government, we will lose our political liberties, our free institutions, and will stand in jeopardy before God of losing our exaltation. I am in full agreement with a statement made by President J. Reuben Clark, quote, I say to you that the price of liberty is and always has been blood, human blood. And if our liberties are lost, we shall never regain them except at the price of blood. They must not be lost." Unquote. Yes, I repeat, righteousness is an indispensable ingredient to liberty. Virtuous people elect wise and good representatives. Good representatives make good laws and then wisely administer them. This tends to preserve righteousness. An unvirtuous citizenry tends to elect representatives who will pander to their covetous lustings. The burden of self-government is a great responsibility. It calls for restraint, righteousness, responsibility, and reliance upon God. It is a truism from the Lord that, quote, when the wicked rule, 
the people mourn, unquote. As presiding officer of the Constitutional Convention, George Washington appealed to the delegates in these words, quote, Let us raise a standard to which the wise and the honest can repair, unquote. Wise and honorable men raised that glorious standard for this nation. It will also take wise and honorable men to perpetuate what was so nobly established. A citizen of this republic cannot do his duty and be an idle spectator. How appropriate and vital it is. At the time of our nation's 200th birthday, to remember this counsel from a Lord, quote, Honest and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good men and wise men ye should observe and uphold, unquote. Goodness, wisdom, and honesty are the three qualities of statesmanship, qualities this country needs more than ever before. May we be wise, prayerfully wise, in the electing of those who would lead us. May we select only those who understand and will adhere to constitutional principles. To do so, we need to understand these principles ourselves. In 1973, the First Presidency of the Church made public this statement. Quote, we urge members of the Church and all Americans to begin now to reflect more intently on the meaning and importance of the Constitution and of adherence to its principles. Unquote. May I urge every Latter-day Saint and all Americans in North and South America to become familiar with every part of this document. Many of the constitutions in South America have been patterned in large measure after the one of the United States. We should understand the Constitution as the Founders meant for it to be understood by reading their words about it, such as contained in the Federalist Papers. Such understanding is essential if we are to preserve what God has given us. I reverence the Constitution of the United States as a sacred document. To me, its words are akin to the revelations of God, for God has placed his stamp of approval on the Constitution of this land. I testify that the God of heaven selected and sent some of his choicest spirits to lay the foundation of this government as a prologue to the restoration of the gospel and the second coming of our Savior. May God bless us to protect this sacred instrument. In the words of the prophet Joseph Smith, quote, May those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the constitution of the land by our fathers, be established forever. 
unquote. And for this I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, as we shared yesterday, the great spirit of 76 North Main of the Relief Society, I would like to share with you the spirit of 76 of the Europe West Area and bring to you a message of love, of testimonies from the people of Belgium, of France, of Italy, Netherlands, Spain, and Switzerland. During my last move and going through what I called the elimination process, I found one of my former students' notebook of international law, where I had written in big capital letters on the front cover a quotation from Aristide Briand, Nobel Prize for Peace, one of the animators of the former League of Nations. It read, The institutions are worth what the individuals are worth. During the years, I've pondered many times about this truth as I studied or worked with different institutions like gum companies, governments, or even churches. And I thought that by the same analogy, I could say that the value of a country depends upon the value of its people and that it will raise or decline according to the desires of its people. One people, one country, has done more for the world in history than any other nation because of the righteous desires of its people. May I today celebrate with you the bicentennial of the creation of this country, a country that has a divinely inspired constitution, and praise the Lord with you for what its inhabitants were, what they are, and what they will be. I remember, I remember as a child, the stories about the generosity of the American people as they were told by my grandfather as I sat on his lap. With a gentle and broken voice, he explained how they were saved from starvation during the end of the First World War. My own first vision of their charity came as a young boy when I saw the first American soldier on his brand gun carrier the day we were liberated, handing me a large piece of something to put in my mouth. And I only found out much later that that something was called corned beef. <laughs> I remember, as a teenager, the sacrifices of the American people as I rode on my bicycle along the cemeteries not far from my home and watched silently the thousands of white crosses ordinarily lined marking the graves of those who gave their lives so that I could live in freedom. I remember, as a student, learning how the countries of Europe kept their economical freedom thanks to General Marshall's plan, 
how our countries kept their independence, how so many countries in the world, struck by national disasters, were rescued and helped. I remember, as a young man, receiving in my home two young men, and strange enough, all these young men had the same first name, Elder. <laughs> They showed our family the Book of Mormon, a divine evidence of the Lord's care and love for His children. They declared to our family the message of the restoration of the gospel, the divine sonship of Christ, the divine mission of Joseph Smith, and the divinity of this church. Their message and their willingness to follow the prophet's call changed our lives. I remember, as a father, as a priesthood holder, as a mission president, how thanks to your examples of charity, of sacrifices of love, of dedication, and of work, that I learned a lesson that the source of all these blessings was God because of the obedience to His commandments. Now I see the fruits of your seeds. As I toured the missions and stakes of Europe, and I would like to share some of them with you. First, the fruits of sharing the gospel and calling every young man as a missionary were seen as I watched a young local Spanish missionary bearing his testimony in Italy. Another elder just recently called from the Paris stake, telling his mission president with tears in his eyes that he and his companion had taught five discussions the day before in a language that he didn't speak three weeks ago. The fruits of loving the message of an inspired prophet of the Lord to lengthen our stride when I listened to a branch mission leader in Brussels, Belgium, telling his priesthood companions that he was thrilled to know that 15 families were ready to find new families and invite them in their homes to be taught by missionaries. The fruits of sacrifice. As I listened to district presidents striving to get better activity, attendance, and results to be qualified to grow into stakes and benefit of all the church programs. The fruits of work, of dedication, as I watched hundreds of members preparing their genealogy to go to the temple, organizing the area general conferences, building the kingdom with a renewed spirit to be of service to their fellow men. The complete list of the fruits would be too long, but you should know that your seed fell into good ground and is bringing forth more and more good fruit. Yes, I remember what you were, and with me, millions of people who looked for the light of example and truth. That was yesterday. Today is already and almost the past for many. And tomorrow wears a mask of fear 
today can still change tomorrow. But what kind of societies are we building? What kind of countries will we have if we, as one people, do not defend ourselves against the assaults of evil? Was it not Moroni who took a piece of his garment to write in order to keep his people from slavery? In remembrance of our God, of our religion, of our peace, of our women, and of our children. I said in the beginning that the value of a country rests upon the values of its people. For the people of God, for the people who want peace for their women and their children, there is only one way, one church, and one Lord. The way is to repent and obey the commandments of the Lord and be examples to the rest of the nations, doing the Lord's will by listening to a living prophet. The church is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, restored by the prophet Joseph Smith. The Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom it is said, For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. This is eternal truth. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. Today, at school, at work, or wherever we can be, the choice between truth and evil will be presented in front of us in many different ways. Could be by papers, by posters, individuals, radio, television, conversation. A mental choice has to be made concrete by accepting or refusing, by dictating or obeying, by counseling or dissuading. What are the feelings that will determine this daily choice? Love, patience, fear, courage, pride, laziness, or will? Are these feelings in accordance with our faith and testimony? The key to the righteous answer is given by a loving Father. He that keepeth my commandments, his commandments, receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. Obedience to the commandments must be the sole and essential condition to determine our choices and will thus determine our eternal life. As Alma expressed it in a very clear way, I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desire, whether it be unto death or unto life. Yea, I know that he allotteth unto men according to their wills, whether they be unto salvation or unto destruction. Yea, and I know that good and evil have come before all men. He that knoweth not good from evil is blameless. But he that knoweth good and evil, to him it is given according to his desires, 
whether he desireth good or evil, life or death, joy or remorse of conscience. May we remember together to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the lands, to serve the Lord with gladness, to know that the Lord is God, that it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves, that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The future of the world is in the hands of the people, and to follow a living prophet today will determine our salvation. It is my prayer that thanks to a great conference, we will make new resolutions in our hearts so that we will be remembered forever and ever as one people who wanted to serve the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. I commend unto you all these great men who have radiated the brilliant light of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ during the proceedings of this conference. The truth that has been shown forth here during the proceedings of this conference should gladden the hearts and calm the souls of all those who will set their course in life by it, that they might travel in perfect safety through a world that is darkened by the teachings of Satan. The Master, Jesus Christ, has set the pattern in all things. He has called all men to follow his pattern with this decree. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel, and ye know the things that ye must do in my church, for the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. Now may I ask you, does your life follow this pattern? May I point out to you a few parts of the pattern and suggest that you compare your life to them. By what name are ye called? Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other name given whereby man may be saved. Do the things which you think and do entitle you to bear the name of Jesus Christ? Does your love for that holy name inspire and lift you to lofty heights and cause desires within you to want all the world to know of him and receive for themselves his sacred name. Do you feel a sharp pain as a dagger had pierced your heart when you hear the name of the Son of God taken in vain? Do you ever walk through doors where he would never enter? Have you kept his name unsullied and spotless so that because of you it has not been allowed to come in contact with that which is base and unbefitting? In his name are you builders of his kingdom? 
No man can serve two masters. Men must either declare themselves as Christ's servants, take upon themselves his name, and do his work, or fall victim to the enticing trap of Satan, helping him in his work of destruction. What about your love for the Father? Christ loved the Father. He prayed to him. He praised him. He represents him in all that he does. He serves him and delights to do his work. He obeys perfectly his every instruction. If we would be like Christ, we too must do these things. For hasn't he said, For that which ye see me do, that shall ye do. What is your relationship with your fellow man? The master again has set the pattern. Wherefore, hear my voice and follow me, and let every man esteem his brother as himself, and practice virtue and holiness before me. And again I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. I say unto you, be one. And if ye are not one, ye are not mine. Do you really love the people around you? Love is the only element that can tenderize the human heart. The love that Christ has for us caused that he became a willing sacrifice to suffer and die for us. It should humble the most proud when they ponder the magnitude of what he did for all mankind as he suffered in the garden. As he revealed that event, he said to us, Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. How much of yourself do you give to your fellow men? Have you followed the pattern Christ set for baptism? He taught the absolute need for all men to be baptized. And whosoever believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whosoever believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. There are many who mock and scoff at this vital ordinance. It has been changed to fit the convenience of men, and in some instances has been cast aside entirely as a thing of no significance. Much of the world embraces the false and, false and wicked teachings of Satan, who has said, God is dead, and therefore his church is dead, and its ordinances are not of any value. And thus only a comparative few have taken upon themselves the name of Christ and entered into his kingdom through the waters of baptism. The message of this church to all men everywhere is the same as been preached 
by Jesus Christ from the beginning. Repent and be baptized. Christ was. And what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. To be like Jesus Christ demands that men change in all earnestness and sincerity of heart. I exhort you to change and be like the Master. You fathers, change and direct the affairs of your family as if Christ were at the helm. You mothers, give love, honor, and respect to your husband and practice Christ-like acts. Expel the ungodly from the confines of your home and maintain it as a sanctuary where your children will learn of God by word and deed. You children, make following Christ the in thing to do. Reject the filth of pornography and the poisons of drugs and alcohol. Be a companion with Christ, and he will draw near unto you and be your best friend. There is no better friend than Christ. You young adults, you are the best of any generation. Maintain your purity. Be the standard bearers of the great move to bring all men unto the Master. Prepare your minds by filling them with the eternal truths contained in the Holy Scriptures. Be obedient to parents and God. Listen to and sing the music of heaven. Reject the vulgar and base sounds and beats of Satan's music. He would like to gain your favor with his sensual and carnal rhythm and thereby lead you down to hell. Resist temptation by building a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. No other relationship will give you greater joy and happiness. To all of you within the sound of my voice who are not following the pattern of the Master, <clears throat> change. Open your hearts to his love. Open your doors to his servants. Let them come into your homes and teach you what you must do to be like him, to reject his servants who are sent forth to do his work and teach his pattern for salvation will cause you to be left in darkness and despair in a troubled world. I testify that Jesus Christ directs the righteous affairs of this earth, that Spencer W. Kimball is a living prophet and receives and follows the instruction of the Master for the salvation of all men who will follow him, that we may do so, every one, is my constant prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.